How does Harry James, the short-tempered protean creator of the DA, winner of the Triwizard Cup, get his fellow students' courage up, defend his reputation? Welcome, folks, to the Umbridge Administration! You're listening to the Quibbler Podcast, the Harry Potter book club for people who are still making Hamilton references. Yeah, Quirrell was a great teacher. There was just that minor drawback of him having Lord Voldemort sticking out of his... I'm Heather Pricewright. And I'm Alex Dallenberg. Welcome to The Quibbler, where we are continuing evermore to read Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. This week our chapters are The Hogwarts High Inquisitor and In the Hog's Head. On this podcast, you will hear ample cursing and spoilers. You will also be exposed to some adult themes. This week's adult themes are fast track legislation, performance reviews, dive bars, shared calendars, and young love. Alex, what happened this week? In this week's chapters, things get pretty topical. There's big news in the Daily Prophet. Cornelius Fudge is trying to undercut Dumbledore by creating a new position, the Hogwarts High Inquisitor, who will have the power to inspect teachers at Hogwarts and report back to the Ministry. And of course, the Hogwarts High Inquisitor is none other than Dolores Umbridge. Which seems like a massive conflict of interest, because who's inspecting the inspector? Who's sitting in on her class? (laughs) Anyway, go on. Also, we learn how Umbridge was appointed to Hogwarts in the first place. In a previous educational decree, the Ministry passed legislation saying that it could appoint Hogwarts faculty if the Headmaster couldn't fill the vacancy. So because Dumbledore couldn't fill the obviously jinxed position of Defense Against the Dark Arts, the Ministry stepped in and appointed Umbridge. Also in this Daily Prophet article, we learn that Lucius Malfoy is only 41 years old, which seems like on the young side to me. That's about how old our parents would have been when we were like... Yeah, I guess you're right. Never 16, mind. 17. Something about it was just like... Something about it was hilarious to me. That it was like Lucius Malfoy, comma, 41, comma. Harry gets a dreadful on his Moonstone essay, despite explaining which kinds of Pokemon can be evolved by the Moonstone. Uh, Jigglypuff turns into Wigglytuff. Clefairy turns into Clefable, etc. Snape was not impressed. Wrong Fantastic Beasts. Inspections under Umbridge begin with Professor Sybil Trelawney's class. Umbridge hilariously puts her seat, like, right next to Trelawney while she's teaching and basically tries to wig her out and succeeds. She asks Trelawney to, like, make a prediction. And Trelawney's like, that's not how it works. It's like when you ask a comedian to, like, make a joke. So Trelawney balks at first, but then is like, I can do this, and predicts, like, a horrible fate for Umbridge, which, is she wrong? Turns out to be true. (laughs) There's drama in Umbridge's own class when Hermione raises her hand and says she's finished reading the entire textbook, and Umbridge then quizzes her on it, and Hermione basically says she disagrees with some of the key tenets in the textbook about jinxes and counter jinxes, and that pisses Umbridge off. So Umbridge goes on a rant about how it's what the textbook says, Wilbert Slinkhard knows better than you, little girl, and your only good teacher was Professor Quirrell, which Harry then retorts, yeah, but he had Voldemort sticking out of the back of his head, and Harry gets another week's worth of detentions slash torture. Umbridge inspects McGonagall's class. They're disappearing mice, which is apparently harder to do than snails, because McGonagall tells them they're more complicated because mice are mammals and snails are invertebrates, to which the class responds, what the fuck are invertebrates? We've never taken biology. (laughs) Yeah, how the fuck do they know what those, like, they're like, what? We don't understand, like, Kingdom Phylum class or, like, whatever that, uh, I don't know. Uh, Kingdom Phylum class order family genus species. Very good. You paid attention. I just memorized the mnemonic device. What's the the mnemonic device? Kings play chess on fluffy green seats. Kingdom Phylum class order family genus species. I will never forget that. See, they were probably taught kings play chess on fluffy green seats and then told that that's what actually happens. (laughs) 
at Hogwarts. Uh, McGonagall is very cold to Umbridge during her inspection, to say the least, but she seems to weather it well. Next up is Grubbly Plank. Umbridge can't really find anything to complain about with Grubbly Plank, but she's definitely fishing for dirt on Hagrid. Draco complains to Umbridge that he got slashed by a hippogriff back in Prisoner of Azkaban, and Harry gets even more detentions by pointing out that it was his own damn fault, so Harry just keeps digging and digging. Back in the common room, Hermione says it's time to do something about Umbridge, and she has an idea. Let's form a club. It's Hermione's great idea, if you will. I don't get that. It's a babysitter's club reference. Oh my god. Awesome. <laughs> oh, like Christy's great idea. Yeah, Hermione's great idea. Okay. We're going to form a Defense Against the Dark Arts Club, and she says that Harry should be the teacher because he's been in the real shit. He's like fought Lord Voldemort on several occasions. He killed a basilisk by stabbing it in the face. He can cast a corporeal Patronus that's a sweet fucking stag. Harry isn't super thrilled with this idea. He says, you don't know what it's like out there. A lot of it was just luck. Hermione says, that's exactly why you should teach us because you, you know, man. Harry gets sort of agitated like he does every other sentence in these books and they drop it and uh, give Harry a couple weeks to mull it over. We also learned that Hermione is still writing to Crumb. Ooh. Yeah. Ron gets pissed. Ron is not happy. Anyway, after a couple weeks of mulling it over, Harry reluctantly agrees to meet with any students that might be interested in learning Defense Against the Dark Arts from him. They meet at this cool dive bar Hermione's heard about called the Hog's Head. Ron wonders if he can try fire whiskey. I guess you can get like a shot in a Miller High Life for like pretty cheap. <laughs> and the sketchy bartender doesn't seem like he checks wizarding IDs. I don't think wizards have IDs. Yeah. You would think they would in this incredibly bureaucratic society. Anyway, the meeting turns out to be crazy well attended. There's like 25 people there. I think it's like 25 or 26 is the exact number. That includes folks like Neville, Fred, and George. Luna Lovegood shows up and also some folks we haven't met before, like Susan Bones, niece of Amelia Bones. And whoa, Cho is there, so it's Butterfly Town for Harry Harry soon realizes that a lot of them are there because they just seem to want to know what happened to him in the Triwizard Cup with Cedric Diggory, which he is reluctant to share details about. One person in particular has a lot of questions. It's but 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 motherfucking Zachariah Smith. Who the fuck is this guy? He's just like, what? Tell us what happened with Lord Voldemort. Harry's like, he doesn't even go here. Zachariah says, I just have a lot of feelings. It's touch and go for a minute, but everyone is super impressed that Harry can do a Patronus. They've heard rumors about him fighting the Basilisk. Hermione tells everyone that the reason they're not learning defensive spells is because the Ministry fears a student uprising. Maybe the Ministry's not super wrong? Luna rants about how Cornelius Fudge has an army of fire demons called Heliopaths and sort of derails the whole meeting, which is then put back on track by Ginny, who's like, okay, where are we going to meet? Let's figure this out. Hermione produces a sign-up sheet, and everyone pledges to each other their lives, fortune, and sacred honor. And we find out, as everyone's leaving, that Ginny has a boyfriend. Michael Corner shows up with his buddies, because he and Ginny are an item. Ron's ears get super red, which is how you know he's experiencing emotions. And Hermione also pulls Harry aside and asks about Cho. She says she couldn't take her eyes off you. And Harry looks around and thinks that Hogsmeade has never looked so beautiful. And that's what happens in this week's chapters. Aww. All right, let's get into this. The Hogwarts High Inquisitor. In a surprise move last night, the Ministry of Magic passed new legislation, giving itself an unprecedented level of control at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. 
The minister has been growing uneasy about goings-on at Hogwarts for some time, said junior assistant to the minister, Percy Weasley. He is now responding to concerns voiced by anxious parents who feel the school may be moving in a direction they do not approve. This is not the first time in recent weeks Fudge has used new laws to effect improvements at the wizarding school. As recently as August 30th, Educational Decree 22 was passed to ensure that, in the event of the current headmaster being unable to provide a candidate for a teaching post, the Ministry should select an appropriate person. That's how Dolores Umbridge came to be appointed to the teaching staff at Hogwarts, said Weasley last night. Dumbledore couldn't find anyone, so the Minister put in Umbridge, and of course she's been an immediate success. She's been a what? said Harry loudly. Here's a big question I have. In these chapters and all others having to do with the Ministry, Educational Decree number whatever, appointing the High Inquisitor, gets passed in like the dead of night and just lands in the Daily Prophet. How the fuck are these laws passed? I don't understand how a wizarding bill becomes a law. No, we need some fucking schoolhouse rock up in here because I have no clue how wizarding legislation works. There seems to be no wizard civics class. Certainly bins could like tack that on at some point. I actually don't think there's like a wizard congress. Like we've gotten no mention of a wizard lawmaking body. I think it's just like individual like ministers of shit just write laws like better it doesn't better than enacted i it, it doesn't it seems like maybe fudge has to give everything the okay but like overall like no we've never had any mention of a wizarding congress or house of representatives or a house of lords or commons we, well we know there's like a court the wizengamot which seems to be incredibly tied in with the ministry since fudge like sits on it there's a reference in this daily prophet article to some dissenters uh to this bill But it doesn't seem like they voted on it. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it says passed, though, so that seems to imply some kind of vote. I've always assumed that there must be some kind of votes being taken, but I don't know. We don't have any indication that there's, like, a lawmaking body. (laughs) Arthur Weasley just writes muggle protection laws because he writes loopholes into them. We've talked about that already. Umbridge seems to have written herself a job. Is it like the various like cabinet agencies which have the ability to make certain like administrative rules to a certain extent within their jurisdiction? Is that like what's going on here? No, they're called decrees. Right. Ah, I think that they're... What the fuck is this? No, they're put forth by powerful members of the ministry and rubber stamped by fudge i don't i honestly don't think there's a wizard Congress. Right. well i just always i just kind of assumed that there must be some kind of majority that is behind these things which allows right fudge, but I, like he has like a power base that allows him to like get this stuff done right he has like a cabinet right i don't think he has a congress it's kind of dumb to make the assumption that like they have like a democratic sort of like bicameral legislature, three branches of government type of government, because it's a medieval system. Fudge seems to be appointed, not elected. In the U.S., it's very hard to get, like, anything passed, so that's why my reaction to this is, how did this even fucking happen? But in a parliamentary system like the U.K., it's, like, much easier for the majority to get its way. I don't think they have a parliament. At any rate, she's given us very little glimpse into how their lawmaking works, But calling this a decree and not a law says to me that this is... This strikes me as an executive order. Like unilateral. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Closer to an executive order. But I think it's a mistake to compare this too closely to American democracy. Because it doesn't make sense that like the wizarding government would be modeled on a democratic system when it massively predates British or American legislative processes. I don't think there's a comparable like legislative body. There might be like a like some kind of a committee that Fudge like turns to to like okay stuff, but I don't I don't think that there's a wizard legislature. At the very least, it seems like there's relatively broad support for these educational decrees. I'm just trying to get a sense of how popular Fudge actually is. It seems like this is a fairly popular measure. Yeah. Because well, based on what we know in the Daily Prophet. But the Daily Prophet, let's talk about that story because it's incredibly biased. Mm-hmm. And they briefly, at the very end, quote, like you said, voices of dissent against this bill. And then uh, they don't hyperlink because they don't have hyperlinks. But they're like, 
read this article later about this woman's connections with goblin dissident groups. Yeah, so they clearly are trying to, like, smear anybody who doesn't agree with this. So I wonder how Fudge consolidated so much power in what seems to be a relatively short time, because in Goblet of Fire, the ministry was coming under a lot of criticism from the Daily Prophet, and now all of a sudden they're beating the drum for the Fudge administration? Yeah, I don't know how he got the press on his side. Uh, he he seem yeah, he seems to have really consolidated a lot of power in in a short time when he seemed to have a pretty brittle grip in book 4. I think some of this might be due to the fact that Rita Skeeter was run out of journalism. There were a lot of things wrong with her, but she was nothing if not an antagonistic journalist. A voice of dissent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, to whoever is in power, just like... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we're kind of missing Rita Skeeter right about now. Right, because she punctured a lot of, of the ministry's, like, pomposity. So, you need that. <laughs> I think what Fudge... I think what Fudge has done really well to consolidate power is create an enemy in Dumbledore. Mm-hmm. I think setting up the adversarial relationship between himself and this person who already a lot of the kind of old school pure blood wizarding world has a lot of mistrust for because of his policies. Fudge has been able to create for himself a real base of support by casting Dumbledore as this like dangerous dissident power. But simultaneously incompetent. Right. Which I mean is a really interesting like needle to thread. Yeah. Because he is simultaneously setting Dumbledore up as this really dangerous adversary and this like bumbling old fool that just needs to be like put out to pasture. So, and he's really carefully kind of like co-creating those narratives. Mm -hmm. But I think that's one of the ways that he's consolidated power. He has a really handy scapegoat in Dumbledore. Who is? A radical. And has a really unpopular message right now. Or an uncomfortable one. It's just interesting the swiftness with which he's been able to shred the reputation of like perhaps the most important and powerful wizard in the world. Fudge is, we talked about this last week, Fudge is pretty canny. Mm-hmm. The fickleness of public opinion is definitely a recurring theme in right. these books. Especially in these later books after Rowling herself has gained a measure of fame and knows what it's like to be like glorified one minute and then sort of demonized like the next. Yeah, and she already has done this really well with Harry. Mm-hmm. I mean, she set up the really complicated dichotomy of fame with Harry where he's reviled and beloved and nobody trusts him, but everybody knows who he is. And so it's interesting to watch her do this with Dumbledore as well. The wizarding world is, like our world, is very, what have you done for me lately? Yeah, extremely. I know I've touched on this before, with the Ministry really emerging as the primary villain in this book, I I love that narrative choice by Rowling and how it fits into the broader saga because book five is it's kind of polarizing, right? You either love this one or you really don't like it. And some of that is because of, like, quote-unquote, emo Harry or whatever. But also I think it is because you know, we've had Voldemort come back at the end of book four We're all primed for this showdown in book five, and he's basically AWOL. And I think that's a bold and interesting choice. The questions involved are a lot thornier than the earlier four books, because it is, in a lot of ways, it's the most explicitly political of the Harry Potter books, I think. In that it's the most explicitly about politics. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. And yeah, this is the one that people, like, when they're trying to get, like, super topical on Twitter or whatever, like, really reference with, like, Dumbledore's army and uh, all that is to come. But uh, I think I really respect that move on Rowling's part. And I think it works really well in the context of this saga. It makes it more than just about this black and white conflict between good and evil because like the malevolent forces in this book isn't just Bond villain Voldemort. It's 
division, gridlock, gaslighting, all these things that in a way are much bigger than Lord Voldemort and will be there after he is defeated or not. Well, and I think it's an interesting reminder because they were there when he was defeated the first time. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've talked about it before, but Cornelius Fudge did virtually nothing to sort of right the ship after Voldemort was defeated. He just deepened the overall denial of the wizarding world and the divisions never got anywhere close to being solved. And I think this is something that's like we can definitely talk about in our own country right now. Like rather than like unite and kind of stare down these things that really threaten like the fabric of our society, we dig ourselves deeper and deeper into these sort of trenches and continue to fight this like war of attrition against one another. And that is the real enemy. Like Lord Voldemort is eminently defeatable. Lord Voldemort is not nearly as powerful as like the enmity between people across like lines of political or ideological difference. And the thing that's scariest about a conflict like this, I think in any culture or society, is just like your inability to get your shit together enough to like be on the same side. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I don't know, like we discussed before, like getting on the same side is like kind of impossible. There is no like perfect unified moment. Right. You know, and like, they're never going to get there. Yeah. You could defeat Lord Voldemort a hundred times and have him come back from the dead a hundred times and still not solve the very basic problems of wizarding society and culture. And that is the real, that's the bad guy in this book. There are a lot of people that accuse these books of being really morally simplistic and very like, oh, good versus evil. Like, that's not a real thing. And I think this book really puts the lie to that idea because it isn't a morally simple book. It is not about a good guy versus a bad guy. It is about a really complicated set of characters fighting for one thing versus a really complicated set of roadblocks and adversaries. Mm -hmm. Like the Order of the Phoenix, I wouldn't say are like that quote unquote good. They're on the side of right, but we have talked at length about the many complications and problems and flaws in the various members of the order and in the operations of the order itself right and what i love about this book is yeah it's not just the big bad the obvious horrible existential thing that you have to overcome that's hard enough but what is possibly even harder is how do you win over the people that could be your allies and the thing that's hard about this book and we learn is that's virtually impossible right so and then the question is how do you make progress in spite of those roadblocks yeah it's way more interesting that there's not just voldemort there's also all these other obstacles that aren't even necessarily connected to lord voldemort certainly not allied with him Mm-hmm. that's what makes this book really resonate for me the fight with lord voldemort is not nearly as interesting as the fight everyone has among themselves about what to do about Lord Voldemort. One thing that is frustrating about this High Inquisitor move is that Dumbledore has left himself wide open to shit like this. Like, Dumbledore's mismanagement of Hogwarts is well documented on this podcast, and Fudge has (laughs) a fairly accurate perception of Dumbledore's ability to run a school. It's possible that he doesn't mind that much that Umbridge has been appointed since the position is obviously jinxed. And something fucking horrible is going to happen to her. Yeah. But, I mean, couldn't you just, like, put a ghost there or something? Like, what could happen to a fucking ghost? I don't know. They can get petrified. Who the fuck knows what else can happen to a ghost? But, yeah, Dumbledore kind of set himself up for this. Yeah, he set himself up for this. His inability to fill the post is... Just stupid. Figure it the fuck out, bro. And all this stuff. Like, he has left himself massively vulnerable to the meddling of this administration by, like, not getting his shit together and, like, running this school adequately. As a result of Dumbledore leaving himself wide the fuck open to this kind of influence, we get these teaching evaluations, basically. (laughs) And my first question is, 
would these be effective and indeed necessary tools in another person's hand? Because honestly, like, the teachers at Hogwarts do need to be whipped into shape. There should be some oversight and accountability at this school. Yeah, but that should be Dumbledore's job. Well, it is Dumbledore's job, and he's patently not fucking doing it. (laughs) And he hasn't been doing it for what seems like decades, because Sybil Trelawney has not taught a good class in her career. (laughs) And the fact that Umbridge is the first, like, fellow adult to show up and be like, you do not know what you are doing, and you are a very, very, very poor educator. Umbridge has a sense of good teaching. Everything about her- Does she? Yeah. She thinks Grubbly Plank is successful, which- is true. But Umbridge herself is a terrible teacher. Right, I know, but she's a deliberately terrible teacher because she's trying to do something, like, ideologically based. Umbridge doesn't, she isn't ever wrong in these evaluations. Like, she evaluates Professor McGonagall positively, I think, even though she doesn't like her as a person. Yeah. You know, she doesn't have her removed. Hagrid is a fucking dismal teacher. Sybil Trelawney should not be allowed to educate students. Like, She's evil and the outcomes are unfair. She shouldn't be able to unilaterally remove people from their posts. But like you said at the beginning, maybe that's why they should have a fucking teacher's union. Um, But like they don't have any accountability for their ability to educate whatsoever. And Dumbledore is not doing that job. I mean, you know, I'm not like up to scratch on the politics of teacher evaluations, but it seems to me that this could possibly be be an effective tool if you had a good faith evaluator that right. wasn't like a political appointee. That's what I mean. Umbridge is the wrong person to be doing this, but like somebody should be checking in on the teaching at Hogwarts because about half the classes are learning anything and about half of them are helmed by people who are utterly incapable of teaching. But I love that Ron like notes this at the very beginning. He's like, yo, McGonagall's evaluation is going to be lit. <laughs> yeah, uh, I appreciate Ron's total respect of Professor McGonagall so much. I do too. He knows that she's an absolute badass. And she is. She's hilarious in this scene. She's like, obviously I knew you were coming. Otherwise I would ask you why the fuck you're in my classroom, <laughs> bitch. That is a great moment. Just a quick return to a quibble from earlier in this episode and last week. Ron puts a wriggling tail of a mostly vanished mouse back in the box. Where the fuck is the rest of that mouse? (laughs) And Hermione is vanishing kittens. Yo. Like, that is fucked up. Schrodinger's kittens. Where are they going? I don't know. Oh my god. It's so upsetting. You guys have to stop practicing vanishing on living beings. Except it is helpful because now we understand why they do practice on living beings because more complex organisms are harder to vanish. So I get that. Why would you need to vanish a kitten? I would want to conjure kittens. (laughs) I don't know. They're eventually going to move up to like vanishing humans and it's going to be like, where the fuck did Neville go? (laughs) Nobody's really sure. My main question, I mean throughout the book, but like in these chapters, Harry gets a lot of flack for his temper. But my question is like, how the fuck is Harry holding it together at all? Yeah, he's basically, he's getting like scarified every night. Yeah, all this shit is going on around him. And then people are like, hold your tongue, control your temper. And he's like, are you fucking kidding me? And it's just, it's a good metaphor for the roiling emotions of being a teen. But like, it's not. Because this is not what most teens are dealing with. I don't know. It's what teens feel like they're dealing with, maybe. I don't know. It's been a while since I was a teen. But I just am like... It's a miracle that Harry hasn't just, like, totally exploded at people. Yeah. Like, I think he's keeping it together admirably. I have (laughs) no idea how he's, like, getting out of bed every morning. You got me. You gotta Just, like, sheer determination. He was raised in a closet. Well, you gotta give it to Harry. For everything he's gone through, his innate, just, like, mental fortitude his mental wellness is kind of incredible he's like displaying a lot of the symptoms of like ptsd and like trauma and grief but 
overall, like, this kid has some serious grit. Yeah. I'm amazed by Harry's behavior. It really bugs me when people are like, oh, Harry's such an emo dick. And it's like, no, Harry is doing a really, really good job with what he's been given. Yeah. Grit. Fendor. Ha ha. He hasn't hit anyone, which is miraculous. Yeah, and he has a wand. He could do way worse than hit someone. Yo, though, you're fucking magic. You know how to, like, whip up potions. Couldn't he just, like, numb his hand every night? Well, Hermione basically does. Yeah, after after it's been, like, cut to shreds for, like, three hours. Well, she clearly, like, has gone to the library and, like, looked up how to heal this. Yeah, no, like, but, like, numb it up beforehand. Oh, they don't know how to like, do that. Like, freeze your fucking hand or something. He clearly doesn't know how to do that. I don't know. Yeah, you're right. Presumably the quill Would... is designed to, like, get around simple preventative measures like that. But I don't know, like, Novocaine. Not Novocaine, that's for your teeth, but... I, uh... You know. It is... They've got charms... To prevent them from feeling pain while being burned, you know. Oh, yeah, that's right. They have a light tickling sensation yeah. when they're... But that's just, like, regular muggle fire. Okay. I guess this, this, is... this fucking quill is gnarly, so who the fuck knows? But I do have to hand it to Hermione for being the only one who it occurs to to, like, heal him. Oh, yeah, that is true. Uh, Harry's hard as fuck. Honestly. To be able to do this every night? And then, like, right the next day. <laughs> It's, like, bleeding everywhere. I also Uh, kind of can't believe that no one else has noticed. Like, he's got this massive, like, scar. Like, it's not even a scar. This massive, like, wound on the back of his hand. Yeah, his, like, scarf is bloodied. And, like, not a single person is, like, bro. Like, what about a Quidditch practice? Also, how is he playing Quidditch with that thing? How is he holding on to his broom? He must be in excruciating pain. I don't know, man. Ron and Hermione are being really good friends. Yeah, they're patient. They're so patient. Even though I just defended Harry a lot, he is still really hard to be around. Yeah, we don't know what's going to set him off, right? So, And they're like chill as fuck about it. On on eggshells. Dragon eggshells. All right, let's talk about Hermione's great idea. (laughs) Defense Against the Dark Arts Club. I forgot that the idea for what becomes Dumbledore's army is fucking Hermione's idea. Everything is Hermione's idea. Hermione defeats Lord Voldemort. Straight up. Hermione's like an incredible community organizer. Yeah. Hermione really gets this put together fast just by like word of mouth. Just by like fucking canvassing essentially. Mm-hmm. Good girl. Yeah, she's so good. <laughs> One thing that's really nice about Defense Against the Dark Arts Club, soon to be Dumbledore's army, is it's kind of a relief to see Harry finally getting some credit. And did you kill a basilisk with that sword in Dumbledore's office? Demanded Terry Boot. That's what one of the portraits on the wall told me when I was in there last year. Uh, yeah, I did. Yeah, said Harry. Justin Finch Fletchley whistled. The Creevy brothers exchanged awestruck looks, and Lavender Brown said, Wow! softly. Harry was feeling slightly hot around the collar now. He was determinedly looking anywhere but at Cho. And in our first year, said Neville to the group at large, he saved that sorcerer's stone. Sorcerers, hissed Hermione. Yes, that, from you-know-who, finished Neville. Hannah Abbott's eyes were as round as galleons. And that's not to mention, said Cho. Harry's eyes snapped onto her. She was looking at him, smiling. His stomach did another somersault. All the tasks he had to get through in the Triwizard Tournament last year, getting past dragons and merpeople and acromantulus and things. There was a murmur of impressed agreement around the table. Harry doesn't get a lot of opportunities to hear from other people, that he's skilled and that what he has done is impressive. He- Except at Quidditch. Right. No, I mean I mean right. specifically within the realm of his accomplishments versus evil. Right. Yeah, it's funny. When they're listing off his insane resume, Harry's like, oh, well, oh, fuck. When you put it that way, <laughs> like, it sounds pretty cool. Yeah. And when you're in the hog's head with this whole group of people... 
and they're one by one timidly being like did you really do this did you really do that and everybody's like dang dude seriously it's like just really a relief to finally have somebody acknowledging Harry has taken on a shit ton and been wildly successful you want to see him recognized by his peers and it's really gratifying to watch that happen. Harry's reaction to the praise of Ron and Hermione and later his fellow students really rings true, though. I mean, it reminds me, you read, like, accounts by people who have won the Medal of Honor or been in, like, incredibly stressful combat situations. And a lot of them say things similar to what Harry says in these chapters. Like, I don't know. Like, I just went into, like, automatic mode. Like, I don't feel like I did anything especially heroic and also I got incredibly lucky because a lot of people in my exact situation did not make it out so yeah attributing so much of it to luck and help I mean first of all it shows that Harry is actually capable of a lot of humility which is not something that he gets credit for very often um because he is kind of vain yeah He struts around a little bit, but ultimately he knows that he is not like Mr. Lone Wolf bringing down shit all by himself. Like he acknowledges that he has help and luck on his side. But at the same time, a lot of it was him. Mm -hmm. And he has abilities that lots of grown wizards don't have, as Hermione points out. And it's just nice, A, to see him getting acknowledged for that, and B, for him to have a really good opportunity to put it to use and say, here I am as someone who has something to offer to my peers, and I'm going to try. This is an interesting chance for Harry to kind of be a leader. So how do you think he does? Well, I mean, we're not to the chapters where he actually, like, is the leader of Dumbledore's army yet, but... I think he handles himself pretty well in this scene. It's touch and go for a minute. Well... He's, he's he's very ambivalent about stepping into the spotlight like this. I mean, you know, he he's not uncomfortable with the spotlight because, like, he's the fucking Quidditch seeker. But, well, he doesn't like attention for the horrible things that have happened to him. Which is fair. Yeah. And I really appreciate where he basically says, if you're here to, like, gawp, at me or like get like salacious details about what happened to Cedric like you can get the fuck out of here I think that's a really strong stance to take and I appreciate that he basically stands up for himself in that way it had just dawned upon him why there were so many people there he felt that Hermione should have seen this coming some of these people maybe even most of them had turned up in the hope of hearing Harry's story firsthand What makes me say you know who's back? He repeated, looking Zacharias straight in the face. I saw him. But Dumbledore told the whole school what happened last year, and if you didn't believe him, you don't believe me, and I'm not wasting an afternoon trying to convince anyone. The whole group seemed to have held its breath while Harry spoke. Harry had the impression that even the barman was listening in. He was wiping the same glass with the filthy rag. It was becoming steadily dirtier. Zacharias said dismissively, All Dumbledore told us last year was that Cedric Diggory got killed by you-know-who and that you brought Diggory's body back to Hogwarts. He didn't give us details. He didn't tell us exactly how Diggory got murdered. I think we'd all like to know. If you've come to hear exactly what it looks like when Voldemort murders someone, I can't help you, Harry said. His temper, always so close to the surface these days, was rising again. He did not take his eyes from Zacharias Smith's aggressive face, determined not to look at Cho. I don't want to talk about Cedric Diggory, all right? So if that's what you're here for, you might as well clear out. I think... See, I had a slightly different reaction to it. I understand those kids wanting more information. Like, their friend Cedric Diggory died, and... The Daily Prophet and the Ministry of Magic have clearly shown that they're willing to, like, take liberties with the truth. Or they're like, you know, they're if you're using all your senses, they're, like, clearly covering something up. But then you're also hearing that Dumbledore is, like, not necessarily to be trusted either. So they want to go straight to the source. Like, they deserve more information, I think, especially if they're going to be asked 
to join this covert defensive magic society. I don't think Harry owes anybody anything. All right. And they're not being asked to join the society. They are being offered the opportunity to join. All right. They're not being, like, recruited to, like, a literal army. Yeah. They're being offered the chance to learn from a really good teacher. I I just get, I get why they want to know more and why they think they are owed more. Because it's really important to them and their futures. I totally understand that. I don't think this is Harry's responsibility one whit. It's not... Harry's fault that all of this stuff happened and it's not Harry's fault that no adults are telling the truth you know take that shit up with Dumbledore fair enough like I totally understand their motivations and I think you're right that they like are hurting themselves and they deserve to know and they deserve to understand but that's not Harry's job like the victim of a crime isn't responsible for like making people understand that crime now sometimes as we're seeing today in this very moment, the victims of crimes take that upon themselves and that's brave as shit, but that's not their responsibility. Like the victims of violence aren't responsible for then going out and informing people more about that violence. Like that's not their labor. The same way like it's not fair to ask people of color like why racism is bad. It's not their responsibility to inform you or educate you. And I don't think it's Harry's responsibility to inform or educate his peers on, like, why Voldemort is fucked up. Well, in that way, Harry's reaction is really well drawn by Rowling here. I think so. I think it sucks that they're not getting this information anywhere else. But that's part of what they're battling. Like, that's part of why they're here is because they're like, we don't really know what's going on and we want to be prepared for anything. But this is Dumbledore's responsibility. Or the teacher's. I mean, fuck. At a school that worked, McGonagall would have had like a house meeting and been like, this is the deal. Here's the counselors that you can go to. This is the hotline you can call if you like are feeling like you need someone to talk to. Like this is this is the responsibility of the adults in the room. It's a literal hotline in the wizarding world because they use fireplaces <laughs> in the fire. as telephones. But you know, it's crazy that McGonagall didn't get all the Gryffindors together and tell them like, what was going on and, like, provide help. Yeah. This is the grown-up's responsibility. It's not Harry's job. I know. I just, uh... I think you're right that it... I I relate to the Hufflepuffs that want to know why their best friend is, like, fucking dead. Yeah. I guess one of the things that's hard about this scene is Zacharias confronts Harry really adversarially, Mm -hmm. which is not fair. Right. Like, why should we trust you as opposed to, like... Can you tell us what happened? Right. So obviously Harry responds by getting his hackles up to this guy who's like being really aggressive. Yeah, I don't know why Zacharias is such a fucking douchebag. I don't know. It's actually kind of nice that there's a douchebag in Hufflepuff. (laughs) Like it sort of complicates the reputation of the house in a way that I appreciate. So I think the elephant in the room right now is that these chapters feel desperately timely. And we should talk a little bit about that. What I'm thinking about in particular is these extraordinary young people who were involved in the school shooting in Florida. And if you don't want to hear or think more about this because the news is saturated and it's terrible, skip this section. We're not going to talk in any detail about like the violence itself. But this horrible unthinkable thing happened to these kids and they turned around and what they did was take matters into their own hands and become the spokespeople and the warriors for themselves and their lives and they're taking on the grown-ups and a lot of people on twitter were drawing connections to harry potter and specifically harry potter and the order of the phoenix you know it's always tricky to do one-on-one allegories With Harry Potter, because, you know, you don't want to feel like you're minimizing what's happening in the, the, like, real world. No. And obviously what we're saying isn't, like, oh, these kids are just like Harry Potter. Yeah. What we're more saying is, like, one of the things that Harry Potter is about is that young people are powerful. And they know who they are. And they know what's right and wrong. And a lot of times adults aren't doing what they should be to keep them safe and well. It's why these books 
and other books like Harry Potter, because I'd be really good fiction for kids and young people recognizes the agency of young people and their ability to imagine and fight for a better world. And that was true when these books came out. It's true today, and it's why they're going to continue to be powerful 50 years from now, because we're still going to have problems, and young people will be finding books like these and being in unfortunate situations and thinking, what am I, like, I going to do about it? You know, we can't say that, like, oh, Harry Potter, like, predicted this moment. Young people have always been, like, brave as fuck, you know? After uh, Ferguson, it was kids, like, on the streets, like, protesting about police brutality and how their communities had been treated. Uh, it was kids it was, in the 60s. Yeah, it was kids in the 60s uh, going into, like, segregated schools, you know? And sitting at segregated lunch counters. Yeah, so... Um, the kids are, I mean, God save the teens. Like, the teens are saving us. So, and yeah, and, and, yeah, and I want to broaden the conversation to make it, like, it's not just Harry Potter and J.K. Rowling that uh, recognizes that in youth. But it's what makes books like these uh, important. One of the reasons that reading these books as adults is really helpful is it's always worth reminding ourselves that young people are full, complicated, wonderful humans. And they know who they are and what they need. And they're willing to do hard shit to fight for themselves and their communities. That's what the kids in these chapters are doing. And... That's what kids are doing in the muggle world everywhere. And if you are yourself a young person, um, I know this is technically a Harry Potter book club for grownups, but I think we have at least a couple of younger listeners. Fight the good fight. And like we're 150 fucking percent behind you. God, I mean, the teens are going to save us. And I have believed that. I have believed that for my whole adulthood. And right now is the worst in a lot of ways but I have not felt this much hope about our ability to change at least one really terrible aspect of our culture in a long long time in these these kids sorry that got so serious and topical but like it's really hard to read these chapters in this moment and not be like holy shit these kids are Dumbledore's army and that's like reductive and like a lot of people think that's kind of stupid and I get that, but it's just a good reminder. Yeah, it's the it's the strength of the books because you're going to see parallels again and again and again. And uh, they resonate. Mm-hmm, yeah. And it's never it's never one to one because like books aren't really supposed to do that. But they are supposed to remind us of the infinite ways and the infinite powers of being a human being in the world so on a lighter note who's your unsung hero my unsung hero is another teen queen Ginny weasley who one gets the meeting back on track after luna like totally derails it with this like heliopath discussion that's the problem when you're setting up uh kind of covert rebel groups right you like attract some fringe elements (laughs) Um, Luna's great. I know, but she's fringy. That's true. You know, she's uh, she's like the chemtrails person in the room or whatever. Uh, anyway, Ginny gets the meaning back on track. But also, out of all the fucking characters in this book, she's the only one who dates around and, like, plays the field before getting, like, married. By the end of the series, Ginny's had multiple boyfriends, and Harry has been on, like, half of a date with Cho Chang and, like, smooched once. Yeah, Harry... And Hermione has, like, kind of dated Crumb for, like, a minute. And Ron goes out with Lavender Brown. Yeah, but that's more like a physical animal connection. Well, also, it's, like, to spite Hermione. (laughs) But, yeah, Ginny is the only one with, like, a healthy teenage sensibility when it comes to, like, romance. I know. So, go Ginny. I respect that immensely. She's also... Like the perfect Weasley. Perfect combination of Fred and George rebelliousness with Bill and Charlie cool. And Ron sort of sweet-spirited loyalty. And Percy's sense of getting shit done. Yeah, she's like 
on the last Weasley, they like finally made the best Weasley. Yeah, they got the Weas the Weasley formula was finally perfected. It took them long enough, but my unsung hero is Professor Grubbly Plank, who a as Professor Umbridge points out is a really good teacher and is covering a lot of really necessary material, but b stands up for Hogwarts in a really cool way and stands up for Dumbledore and is like, yeah, I get all the fucking support I need. Also, she says that they are pretty well trained on care of magical creatures. She gives Hagrid some props. She's like, yeah, they've seen Nifflers. Like, they've seen all this shit. I only have a couple of things left to show them. They've gotten a pretty good education. So good for her for standing up for the school, even though she's wrong about Dumbledore. He does not give her enough support. (laughs) I'm ready for Hagrid to come back, though. Maybe not to be teacher, but game warden. I do miss Hagrid. Grubbly Plank's legit brought in maybe cooler creatures than Hagrid at this point. She's a way better teacher. Unicorns and the Botreckles are legit. They're fucked up. I guess Hagrid had Nifflers, so that was pretty tight. Yeah. Because they can find gold. Once Hagrid kind of gets his sea legs, he's actually a pretty good lesson planner. He's just he's just emotional. Yeah. He's easily derailed. It's true. Alas. This week's episode is brought to you by the Hogshead Inn, where nobody knows your name. (laughs) You can find this podcast wherever it is that you find podcasts. And when you get there, we would love it if you would subscribe. And if it's an option, leave us a quick rating and review. Thank you for doing that. For those of you who already have, they're all very nice. We are across various social media platforms at Quibbler Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also email us. That's quibblerpodcast at gmail.com. And um, yeah, we're a lot of places. Interact with us. We love you and we love to chat. Next week, we are reading the chapters called Educational Decree number 24 and ba-ba-ba motherfucking Dumbledore's army. Thanks! Samigos! Ministry seeks educational reform. Dolores Umbridge appointed first ever High Inquisitor. High Inquisitor? said Harry darkly. What does that mean? I didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition! Oh yeah, I'm going above and beyond. I'm serious black. I got my magic wand and oh yeah, there is nothing you could do to harm.